Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, here with my ever more amazing (laughs) co-host, Ellen McGirt. And Ellen, we're doing something different this week. Tell us about it. (laughs) Well, we we normally talk to CEOs on this podcast, but this week we aren't talking to a CEO. We are talking to a board chairman. We are. And we're not talking to just any board chairman. We're talking to Mr. Bill Kennard, who used to be the FCC chairman, a position he held from 1997 to 2001. He has a long history in government and also in private practice, and he's now the board chair of AT&T, effective January 2021, and he is a very thoughtful guy. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation for two reasons. One is about half of all U.S. companies these days give the chair title to the CEO. I personally think that's a mistake. Mm -hmm. I think an independent chairman is a good thing, and Bill Kennard is an independent chair. But second, His FCC expertise gives him a window into the importance of universal connectivity, universal broadband, which we heard heard recently from Al Kelly. Such an important thing for in the post-pandemic world. If you don't have access to broadband, you don't necessarily have access to education or to healthcare. So it's really a problem that has to be solved. And he has a great perspective on it. And that's where we started the interview. I want to start by talking about 5G, because we all hear a lot about the race for 5G as though it's vital to the future of the nation. And I'd love for you to tell us from your perspective as chairman of AT&T, why is 5G so important? And is it in fact a race to get to 5G? Well, it, it is very important. A lot of people don't quite see the importance because We haven't seen all the applications that will drive 5G yet. The early, really exciting applications are in the enterprise space. So think very high speeds for applications like robotics in factories or remote diagnostics for telemedicine or stadiums or factories that have millions of sensors that are secure and able to be virtualized to increase productivity. Those applications are coming and they will be 5G enabled. They will eventually migrate to consumer use. Like most new technologies, many of them start in the enterprise and then they migrate to consumer use. And then you have a whole cauldron of new innovation around them. So the last generation of wireless was 4G, LTE. And when 10 years ago, when that was getting started, a lot of people were asking the same questions they're asking today about 5G. You know, what is it going to do? Why do I need it? Well, you know, after the introduction of 4G, we see that it enabled things like ride hailing services, Uber and Lyft, and lots of innovation around GPS, Google Maps, things like that. My dinner tonight. Exactly right. (laughs) Exactly right. And my grocery shopping tomorrow. Exactly right. Instacart, uh, DoorDash, Grubhub, all of those things. Plus, it enabled video to go mobile. 
over iPads yeah. and smartphones. So who would have thought about that at the beginning of 4G? But it, you know, it literally changed the world. And I think it's easy to envision that 5G will do the same thing. And how about the race part? Is it important that we get there first? Are we competing against China for 5G? Is there a, a great global geostrategic game going on here in your view? It, there is. No, no question about it. Because we in the United States, we pioneered uh, wireless phones and the, and the internet. And because of that, we were able to set global standards that the rest of the world would follow. That was good for our companies, good for our manufacturers. I think there's probably room in the world for two different platforms. But, you know, the important thing is that these networks are much more valuable if they're deployed with a single standard and a single technology. And mm -hmm. so the, it's important that the U.S. have a seat at that table. If there is something of a race, are we getting where we need to get as quickly as we need to get there? I think we are. I mean, you, you always want to move faster. But if you just in the United States, we're seeing the, the three major carriers deploy 5G at pretty phenomenal speeds. And a lot of that is being enabled by new spectrum. I give the, yeah. the FCC a lot of credit for pumping a lot of new spectrum into the marketplace. You know, it is really a public-private partnership when you deploy these networks because you need the raw material of the network, which is the spectrum. Bill, I think you know me well enough to know that I have a reasonably sunny personality, but I have become quite famous from this podcast for asking the not upbeat question. <laughs> I do have. <laughs> well, I do have. She a sees the clouds. I know. It's like, do you see any uh, bright spots in the future, Ellen? No, I don't, Alan. Back to you. <laughs> I do not. I'm worried about all of it. But when it comes to 5G and China, a lot of rhetoric is in the in the marketplace. Things like concealed kill switches to cripple Western telecom systems and siphoning of corporate or sensitive data and that kind of stuff. So could you help us sort of parse through all this? Is, is this really an infrastructure breakthrough or is it a geopolitical time bomb waiting to happen? It's both. It is clear that the deployment of networks by the Chinese government does have national security implications for us. And it's something that we have to monitor carefully. We have to make sure that the technology that's being incorporated into networks is not being used to spy on American citizens or gather data about American citizens that can ultimately undermine our national security interests. I have confidence that the federal government is on top of this. It's not a doomsday scenario. I think it's manageable, but we just need to know and have visibility into the technology that's going into our networks that ultimately um, all of us use every day. It's pretty fundamental. And it also requires enterprise partners and, and enterprise business to wrestle with some of the same ethical questions we're going to ask our geopolitical partners to wrestle with. What do we do with the data that people don't know that they're giving up by walking into a stadium, for example? How do you how do you think about that philosophically? Well, I think it's a it's a really important issue, not just because we want to protect people's right to control their own data, but also it's a business issue because mm -hmm. at AT&T, we're in the business of providing connectivity and entertainment to people. And we want to make sure that they're comfortable using our networks. Some states have now moved ahead to kind of unfortunately fill the vacuum that is left by 
the lack of federal action on this. But I am hopeful that there'll be a bipartisan effort to legislate at the federal level, because the last thing we want, right, is a, a fragmented uh, privacy regime where companies like AT&T have to comply with privacy laws that vary state by state. Right. That is just unsustainable. Bill, I, I want to take a step back here in this conversation because you're you're chairman of the board. Most of the people we interview on this podcast are CEOs. They're in the day-to-day uh, details. So we don't often get the board perspective. Mm. When you look at the company and look at the world today, what are the top concerns from the board's point of view? What are your top three or top four issues? I'll start with AT&T. AT&T is a quite amazing company. When you think of the fact that AT&T had its, its origins with the invention of the telephone mm-hmm. by Alexander Graham Bell in 1877. <laughs> and the company was first incorporated in, I think, 1885 as the American Telephone and Telegraph Company. So 136 years later, that company still exists. So for a company like AT&T, it has to continue to innovate and then disrupt itself. So mm-hmm. as board members, we have to be remain very, very focused on the pace of this innovation and disruption to make sure we're calibrating it right. And it, you know, it's a delicate balance, right? Because you have to maintain cash flow from your legacy businesses and then invest in new businesses like we're doing with HBO Max today. And it's complex. The good news is that it's sort of embedded in AT&T's DNA because they've had to do this for decades, hmm. literally. Hmm. And they've had to figure out what is in a sense, what is the the pace at which you cannibalize yourself? Mm. You know, there's a lot of, of attention in the business headlines these days about how the Silicon Valley giants are disrupting legacy businesses. There's not as much attention paid to how legacy businesses have to disrupt themselves. Yeah, well put. And the board is important in that process? Oh, absolutely. Because these are the highest level strategic decisions about capital allocation and how you allocate your capital to to new businesses. And getting it right is really important. Now, stepping back and looking at the, the broader, more macro aspect of your question, the board at AT&T, like all boards today, are focused on the role of corporations in society. Right. And so increasingly you're seeing corporations step into the vacuum where, you know, government leadership has sometimes failed or just can't get the job done. And you're seeing uh, corporations step up. We saw this with the roundtable, you know, statement of purpose. Corporations are increasingly questioning what is their role in society? How do corporations help solve the challenges of income inequality and racial inequality in the country and political instability? Because these are questions corporations have to address in order to be successful in society. Uh, uh, Bill, we're on a Zoom call, so Ellen and I can't hug you right now. But, I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but you just stated precisely the theme of this podcast, and we may cut that quote and just put it at the top of every episode. That's great. From That's now. great. Please do. <laughs> 
I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is CEO of Deloitte US and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Joe, thanks for being with us and thanks for your support of our second season. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. So, Joe, one of the surprises we saw in 2020 in the midst of a lot of bad news was some good news, an acceleration in the adoption of digital technology. Do you think that's going to continue once the pandemic goes away? I do, Alan. And I would say that the cause for optimism is warranted. There are going to be some pretty significant dividends that come from the massive acceleration in all things digital. And as we move into a post-pandemic world, we're going to see significant benefits to the economy from the big digital transformation investments that companies are making. I think we're going to see big benefits to people in terms of quality of life as we see new models for working that allow greater flexibility, greater productivity. So on the whole, I'm pretty optimistic that there's a path out of this and that as we emerge, that there will be some bright spots, albeit coming from a pretty dark moment in time. So people were forced to innovate in 2020 because an extreme change of circumstances was forced upon them. But can they keep up that pace of innovation? Well, that's the challenge for all of us as leaders. I saw a great quote in one of your interviews recently, Alan, that in this period of time, change was free because the alternative to change was even worse. We all have to look back on the way in which we moved so quickly, we broke some glass, we didn't let corporate bureaucracy get in the way, and it actually benefited all of us significantly and leverage that mindset going forward to act more quickly, to be less inhibited by risk, and to see the true benefit of embedding digital transformation and an agile mindset within the way that our organizations operate on a go-forward basis. Joe, thank you. So the big vision of, of a corporation's role in society, and AT&T in particular, how are you thinking about the magic of the technology, the connectivity, the platforms, the media that you do provide from a social impact point of view for the people who are not connected? A good example is what we saw in the wake of the pandemic. You know, the pandemic really exposed a lot of inequality in America. It exposed a lot of the, the challenges that people face in staying connected. 17 million American school children didn't have adequate access to, uh, to connectivity to, mm. to go to school remotely. And, you know, and it was, it was heartbreaking to see low-income kids or kids in rural areas you know, going to parking lots to find hotspots to try to do their homework on smartphones. You know? So at, at AT&T, you know, that hits us in our gut, right? Because that's our mission to provide connectivity. And so we're working really hard to try to, to stem the, that digital divide that is still vexing. We've made a huge amount of progress. You know, obviously, the pandemic, while it exposed these inequities, it, it was also a really hopeful story because in the course of a couple of weeks, the entire country started working from home and learning remotely. And the networks were resilient. They supported that. Imagine if the pandemic had happened 10 or 15 years ago before we had made these investments in broadband networks, right? It would have been a different story. Do you know, companies like AT&T invest enormous amounts of money. We'll, in, we'll invest 
I think our capital plan for the next five years or so is $135 billion of capital investment, primarily in, in networks. But we can't do it alone. I mean, government has to assist. And what I'm really hopeful about is that coming out of the pandemic, there is a renewed recognition by government that we need to invest in broadband networks. Think about um, the challenge of getting the phone network in the early part of the 20th century deployed throughout the world, uh, throughout the country, particularly rural areas. That was a phenomenal achievement in this country. And we did it through a public-private partnership, people paying subsidies on their phone bills so that would fund the development of networks in rural areas and in, in underserved areas. Well, that framework is broken now. It really doesn't work because it was based on the wireline phone network. And the wireline phone network is not where people go for their connectivity. They're going to the internet and broadband networks. And so those subsidy systems are broken and we've, we've, got, to, we've got to fix them. Are you suggesting that there should be a mandate like there was for telephones, that everyone has a right to broadband because they need it for their health, they need it for their education, and therefore we should make sure that everyone has access? Well, I don't know what a mandate means, but I think what we need is we need government to ensure that any American has access to broadband as a, a fundamental necessity in society, the same way we've thought about phone service and energy, utilities. It's that fundamental. And unfortunately, some people in America still don't have it. Many people in America don't have it because it's not affordable for companies to provide it in every nook and cranny of the, of the country. So there has to be some government support where there is, a, in effect, a market failure to provide mm. that service. And what I'm saying is the mechanism for doing that has existed in our law for a long time, but it's broken. And you have the emergence of, for example, the big tech giants, uh, Facebook, Amazon, who are, their business models are dependent on networks that they don't own, but they have no responsibility for subsidizing them. And there is a conversation going on now in Washington about how to fix that and how to increase the subsidy pool, if you will, by drawing in new players. You think we'll get it done this year? Uh, who knows? I mean, I, I've, I've given up predicting when Congress will act on anything <laughs> these days, but I wouldn't rule it out. Bill, you mentioned 10 years ago, the pandemic would be so different. And in preparing for this conversation, I went back and I looked on C-SPAN and I found a panel that you led at the 2009 Agenda for the New Media Era which was such an interesting way to look back at what people were excited about back then. The iPhone was still pretty new. The Obama administration was still pretty new. And we were talking about the towering vision of the broadband pipe coming into every home and just the very early idea that you actually had the internet on your pocket when you had a phone in your pocket. It was still so new. But what's not new, that it was you and four very charismatic, very, very successful white executives. And so that's sort of a sideways switch into the diversity question. We talk about it a lot here on the podcast and in my reporting. It was the, the clear problem associated with underrepresentation in executive ranks. And for an industry that's as important as this one, it seems to be a continuing problem. How do you think about that? And how do we get here? And what do we do about it? Well, I think we all know how we got here because we're, we all live in America, right? And we know the, you know, the ugly history of race 
in our country. But looking ahead, I think we have to think of diversity as not just an initiative, but core to a company's purpose. And it was really interesting to see in the wake of the killing of George Floyd last year and the, you know, the awakening around inequality in the country to see the corporate response. You know, some corporations, I would say almost every corporation thought about how they were doing internally. Were they uh, providing opportunities for their own executives and did they have diverse boards? And that's really important and useful. But I think the companies that were the most thoughtful and ultimately will be the most successful are those that also saw this as an external mission. That again, going back to the role of the corporation in society. And one of the things that I'm so proud about AT&T and what they did is said, what can we do in our communities, right? What, what can we do to change the lives of of African-American people in those communities. And so Randall Stevenson led an effort at the Business Roundtable to work at the federal level and at the state level to change policing, to advance policing reform. And, and AT&T was instrumental in yep. advocating and successfully getting passed legislation in, in states around the country to do things like ban chokeholds and reform policing. Now, that is how corporations can harness their power and influence to change society. Was there any board discussion or debate about that? Did any, you know, they say, is this the right way for our CEO to be spending his time? Because obviously policing reform doesn't have a direct effect on AT&T's bottom line. Not clear what it does for shareholders. Oh, we certainly talked about it. There was never any pushback. Because AT&T realizes that we, at the time we had in Randall Stevenson, and, and I know that John Stanky has picked up that mantle, there is a real sense that not only corporate leadership, but moral leadership uh, for the company and for the country. I, I got to say, you just used the phrase moral leadership. I've been covering business and the relationship between business and society for almost four decades now. And I think it's only in the last five years that I've heard anyone in a position like yours talk about corporate leadership and moral leadership in the same sentence. So in your view, Bill, does this mean that boards will be looking for a different type of CEO going forward or that they'd be looking for different kinds of characteristics, chiefly among them, a comfort and a fluency with these kinds of um, important issues? I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. I think it's too soon to tell. Mm -hmm. But you know, there was a time in corporate America, and I'm sure you you remember this, when as American companies became more global, they looked for CEOs that had cultural fluency and could operate in markets around the world and, you know, were very emotionally intelligent and could better understand how to lead diverse workforces, multicultural workforces. I think that that is, there's a, a recognition that that has to be done domestically as well. Right. And that we we have to for a successful CEO, they have to understand how to unlock the potential of all their employees. And it's more than just creating a diverse workforce. It's creating the sense of belonging that people feel like they can be different in the workforce and still be valued. And not everybody has to conform to a certain image or sort of corporate type 
And it's beyond race. You know, it's it's about religion and sexual preference and even body type and disability, you know, and that is the kind of sensitivity that I think uh, will be increasingly valuable for corporate leaders at all levels in the future. You know, I can't believe we're just about out of time. We're probably past out of time. And we haven't asked you anything about the media business. Huh. And of course, of course, <laughs> we have common roots. Fortune, before it was independent, was part of Meredith Corporation, which was before that was Time Inc., which before that was part of Time Warner. Right. And your media yeah. assets also came out of, of Time Warner. I, I guess my question is, Are you sure it makes sense, given the huge challenges you have as a communications company, to own a a media company? You know, I've been in this business a long time. And and if you can give customers more products, more flexibility, they'll stick with you for longer. And so the, you know, the industrial logic of AT&T owning a media company was that we had have over 100 million consumers buy our wireless services and they'd love to watch HBO Max on those phones and iPads or in their offices over our fiber connections. So, you know, it makes a lot of sense for us to to be in this business. Plus, as you know, in this, you know, the streaming wars, as they call them, it's all about quality content, right? So we didn't buy just any media company. We, we bought Warner Media, which has one of the deepest, highest quality libraries of premium content in the world, probably the best. And so when you marry all those assets, you get a really, really powerful combination. Yeah. Well, if you had done it a few years earlier, we might be there with you, but uh, that would have been nice. (laughs) Missed opportunity. (laughs) But thank you at least for taking time to be with us on Leadership Next. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And great to see you both. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 